Hello, I'm Emily Austin, founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become harder and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with a stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, seems to be a mark of status. But when did that happen? Why has the goal become to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? My own experiences of the rhetoric around entrepreneurialism is that everyone's full of shit and no one actually tells the real story. This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed and honest insight into the reality of running a business from some of our favourite entrepreneurs. This week on the podcast, I'm really excited to bring you a very special episode with a friend and an old client of mine, actually, Julian Hearn, who founded Huel. Julian started Huel six years ago. He'd had two previous businesses. One was successful, one wasn't. The one that wasn't created Huel. That's what span out of it. He talked to me really openly about his business journey, about what he's had to sacrifice, about the original plan for Huel. He danced around whether they're going to IPO this year, but either way, they've just announced that they've done over £100 million in revenue and are a profitable business, which not everyone can say and is an extraordinary feat for a company that's barely raised any money. And Julian still has a huge amount of the equity of the business. It's a brand that you will have seen on social media. You've probably seen people wearing the T-shirts. The culture of the business is extraordinary. And Julian is an incredibly impressive, thoughtful, kind man. He's got new ideas. He's got new products. They've just launched a clothing line. I really hope you enjoy it. And please do let me know your feedback on this special episode. Can you start by telling me what Huel is and what problem the brand is solving? Okay, it's probably easy to start with a problem first. So the problem yeah. is people want healthy, convenience food. And uh, Huel spun out of a company that uh, I was trying to get fit. I was trying to get lean at the time. And and I did, but in quite a tricky way. Mm. Right? I was cooking all my meals from scratch. I was weighing every ingredient that went into those meals. Mm. It was pretty time-consuming. And uh, my friends wanted to achieve the same results. And so uh, they just said, I can't do that. It's too much work. I can't stop in the middle of the day and cook a meal. I can't stop at 11 o'clock and weigh out some some broccoli and some an egg and cook it from scratch. So they just wanted more convenient food. Mm -hmm. They wanted it to be in a healthier format. Most people typically grab a sandwich, which is not optimized for nutrition, or they grab, you know, pasty on the way at a right. service station or something so they wanted healthy convenience food so that's exactly what Huel is and the way we define healthy convenience food is it provides everything you need in a single product so it provides fats which are essential in life even though people try to avoid them they're yeah. really essential um, carbohydrates which technically aren't essential but it does help the product uh, proteins fiber uh, vitamins and minerals and there's 26 of those in the UK that are essential, and then there's phytonutrients on top, which is good stuff you get from plants, which is not technically uh, classified as essential, but we, we, we put it in there. 
So those are the essential stuff. Yeah. When you talk about people meal prepping, weighing, etc., what year is that? Because obviously now, you know, with Huel and with other more convenient solutions across yeah. the board, perhaps not nutritionally complete, but certainly uh, more helpful. What year was that in that you were having those conversations that you were aware of? My God, what year? I've been doing this for so long now. Uh, let me think. Uh, must have been 2012. Okay. Yeah, 2011. So three, four years before you started yeah. the business. Yeah, exactly. What were you doing before Huel? Tell me a bit more about the journey to Huel. Okay, so my background is in marketing, uh, retail marketing. I worked for the likes of Waitrose, Tesco's, Starbucks, um, and sort of focus on retail stroke digital. So I did set up MFI's website in the original days back in ninety. Career highlight? 97, <laughs> 98, something like that. So really early. Yeah. I set up their first e-commerce website and uh, and then did various internet stuff thereafter. So I was sort of quite early into internet mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, marketing my background. And then in 2008, 2008, yeah, 2008, I uh, jacked job in. Mm-hmm. I went here alone because... Um, I was commuting into London each day, hour and a half commutes each way. So it was a long, old day. Mm. And me and my wife were trying to have a baby. We had lots of miscarriages. We wanted to work from home. And there was just no jobs in this local area where we're still out today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was Buckinghamshire. There was no sort of job that could match the salary. So I decided to create the job for myself. So that was like working for myself. So I took a good year um, working evenings and weekends to get up to speed. Then uh, felt confident enough to jack the job in. Mm. Jack and Job started a business, which is an internet affiliate marketing business, and um, that took off. And three years later, I sold that. They took a type some time out, started a business called Body Hack, and that's what you all spent out. Three years is a quick time to launch yep. and exit a business. Mm. Did you have similar expectations when you started Huel? No, completely different goal. I'd already made my money, so it wasn't money was not the objective anymore. Mm. The objective really to give me something to do. Yeah. And something that was going to be something I was into, something that, that uh, showed my son sort of good um, work-life balance and actually showed that you should you should go to work, I believe. You mm. should actually do something with your life, not just sit around, which I could have done. Yeah. And I wanted to sort of do something which was going to be something I was going to be proud of. I think the first business was very good at generating cash. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't want to tell people about what you did for a living, really. Right. It was a cash generator, and that was it. It wasn't any, it didn't give anything positive in the So world. it was a business more than a brand. Correct. Yeah, so this time I wanted to do it completely different. Money was not the object. Yeah. And the weird thing is by not even trying to, not saying not trying to make money, but by not having money as an objective, mm-hmm. it actually turned into a much, much bigger business. Yeah. So sometimes focusing on money produces not the result you actually want. Is that a luxury of making money in a previous business? Yeah, of course. Yeah, there's more to fall back on if you fail. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't have done this if I didn't have that to fall back on because it took two to three years to get to market fundamentally and I'd burnt cash along the way as well. So most people couldn't do that. So yeah, if you're starting a business... It's, it's scary because you've got two choices. You either do it the way that I did, so you do something which is a good at cash generating and very fast mm. to get that money to give you that that um, the money for the future business is going to be the real the real big one. Mm. Or you have to go and raise money and beg people to give you the money, which some people do good at that route. It can work, but I know that's very hard. I remember in the early days meeting the guys, I was talking about raising some money, and he had a big spreadsheet and he met 140 different investors. And if you're doing that, I don't see how you can... You can't, how can you work on the business if you're yeah. doing that all the time? 
it's that's a, a pretty uh, exhausting, relentless pursuit. Yeah. Does your son drink you, take you, eat you? Um, does he? How old is he now? He's eleven. Eleven now. He he does like the the new complete protein bars. Yeah. He he likes the RTD uh, strawberry and also the vanilla one powder. No, he's not so keen, and he does have the hot and savories every now and again. Yeah. Do you have lots of? Children, I guess, under 18s consuming the product. I don't know. Don't know. Don't know. No, don't really know. I don't focus on customer base in terms of demographics too much at all. Okay. So I don't look at that really at all. I sort of know some very, very top line data about customers in terms of um, gender, yeah. for example. Ages, I don't focus on really at all. No. I think that uh, the typical way that people. Uh, talk about target markets is age etc like that but I've always used the example in my class at school everyone was different right so mm-hmm. just because you're the same age doesn't mean you're the same type of person so I think personal traits are much more important so for me age is fairly irrelevant does your son tell people that his dad started to <laughs> is he <laughs> proud of you or is he like 11 and doesn't give a shit he doesn't give a shit yeah fine I don't ungrateful little I don't I don't really know to be honest uh, I haven't asked him about that I said to him what's the other dad's doing Yes, I'm trying to ask you indirectly. What are the other dads at school? He goes, don't know. I said, do you ever tell anybody? He goes, no. No. So don't think so. You're just like gunning for a career day (laughs) where you can go in in your T-shirt. Perfect. So I'm interested in um, when you started your, when you quit your job, 2008-ish, you weren't a 20-year-old having a go. You had a a family, you had a a wife, you had presumably a mortgage or at least some sort of, um, you know, regular outgoings. You mentioned that you spent a year kind of figuring stuff out and feeling like you were confident enough to make the move. What is your relationship like with risk? Did that feel at the time like a massive risk or did you just mitigate as much as possible before you actually quit your job? I think I'm pretty risk adverse. I don't like, I don't think anybody does, but I don't like, I don't like losing. I certainly don't like losing money. So I'm pretty risk averse when it comes to stuff like that. I couldn't risk the family house on this. I didn't really. Yeah. So the way I mitigated is, is that being older, so I was 37 at the time, being older means that you can, uh, you should have a lot more knowledge behind you and uh, you should be able to get stuff done. Um, but the key thing that I did is I spent, like I said, evenings and weekends for a whole year Right, learning, mm. practicing, learning, testing. And just like online, talking to people, do you do yeah, courses? Tons. No, no, I didn't do any courses. I just I did read a lot, you know, I'm not a big reader, I did read a lot. So at the time I don't think you podcasts were around back then really. Yeah. So I did read a fair chunk of blogs, etc. Uh, forums, chatted a little bit to people, but really most of it was test and learn. I was setting up little affiliate websites, like really crappy ones. Set them up myself, testing, trying to get SEO. That was the key thing, was the SEO okay. at the time, trying to get search engine traffic. And that was, at the time, a bit of an art form. So that was the main things I was doing. I started to get little bits of traffic, little bits of money coming in. And over that year, it just grew, grew, grew. And I probably started three, four, five websites in that time, mm. trying different, like, approaches. And then one of them sort of I started, I could see this one. I got a tiny bit of money coming through to it. I could just see how I could scale that one. Because what it was, it was basically voucher codes. And at the time... I found a little niche in voucher codes. Everybody's going after the, the terms voucher codes or discount codes, and nobody's going after promotional codes. Okay. And promotional codes were on some people's checkouts. So I think each each merchant chooses what words to use when they have that little box. And uh, nobody's spotted this really. There's nobody doing that. So I spotted it, 
And so I created a website that was very sexy URL, which is promotionalcodes.org.uk. So back in those days, your keywords in your URL counted. And then just optimized the page for promotional codes. And I started getting some traffic. And of course, that was just one merchant. There's like thousands of merchants out there. So I knew that I could just scale it if I had time Mm -hmm. to scale it out. And so that gave me a lot of confidence. And so the day when I started, you know, maybe I was only a few thousand pounds a month on the side, I started going, shit, I can do this. And I, if I had more time, I could produce more pages mm-hmm. for more merchants. So that was the point at which I had enough money in the bank to pay the mortgage for six months, to eat for six months, not to go on a holiday or do anything like that, literally mm-hmm. just to pay the bare bones yeah. for six months. I said to, the, said to my wife at the time, uh, give me six months, I will earn, by that time I'll be I'll earn the same as what I was on salary. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I can't do that, I'll go back and get a full-time job again. And I felt pretty confident and my CV was pretty strong. So I could get another job fairly quickly or go contracting or something. But I thought I could do it. And within three months, I was earning more money than my salary. I want to ask you about knowing when to quit. Because it's interesting that you set yourself a kind of six month, like I've got to do this within this time or, or yeah. now. Nowadays, there's so much narrative in the media in podcasts about young entrepreneurs becoming a billionaire overnight everyone talks about wanting a billion dollar company everyone for some reason wants to IPO which I am going to ask you about later but you know I don't know why anyone would do that lightly it's an enormous um undertaking to do when is the right time to quit do you need does it need to hit within a certain amount of time you know if you meet people who have been in a business for 10 years and are slogging away is it like is it sort of a curve where after a certain amount of time it drops off a cliff and it's like people ain't going to pick this up? Because we hear like don't give up all the time, right? That's the entrepreneurial thing. Is like but I don't know. People talk about fail fast all the time, right? I think sometimes there's, there's a culture of failing too fast and people give it up too easy. Right. I think there's definitely an argument to give up. There's definitely an argument to push through sometimes. Yeah. That is a judgment cause. The same as a relationship. Yeah. If you're in a relationship with someone, sometimes things get hard. Yeah. Do you bail or leave or do you stay and push through? Mm-hmm. I don't think there is a straight answer. I think it has to be what you feel is right at that moment in time. So I've given, I've had three businesses really. My first one just took off straight away and I could just see lots of positive growth. Yeah. Uh, the second business, which was Body Hat, which you all span out of, yeah. that one got some initial traction and then sort of died a death quite quick. And the feedback was, this is too hard, I can't do it. And I, I came up with you know, 50 ideas of how to make it better. I could see how to make it better, but they all felt like, pushing water uphill it did feel like hard work mm. and then sure it was just a, it was it excited me a lot more I could just see so much more opportunities and I couldn't get it I couldn't shake it off I just kept on seeing it and I just kept on thinking why am I work pushing water uphill here when there's something over here where it feels mm. like it would be easy if I could dedicate myself to that and that's why I gave up on body hack and moved into Hill. your previous business that you just described the promotional codes mm. is quite nerdy right yeah. as a business were you were you good at school did mm-hmm. you study you know you mentioned you did some reading until you could you yeah. know be lazier and just listen to the audio but yeah. were you nerdy and head in a book what no, was your no I don't think so at school I was probably I was probably middle most stuff I was okay at sports I was okay at school I left school at 16 mm. I left school with I never got two E's at English yeah, that's not good, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I got probably, I think my highest grade was like science. I think I got a B in science. I, mean, I got a couple of C's and something. That was it. But did the world tell you then 
you're 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 rubbish did you feel very restricted by your grades at that time I mean the school that I went to everybody was basically the same right okay. so everybody that I, st- I still see some of the guys from the same school I mean they've ended up being I don't know lorry drivers uh, builders roofers stuff like that it was yeah. just a very sort of working class school so nobody had any great ambitions and nobody thought any different nobody I, I don't in those days I'm 50 now right so Are you? Yeah, I was 50 a couple of weeks, uh, last week. Congratulations. Last week. Oh, I saw, you just didn't, I yeah. saw on Instagram, you just didn't put the number, but I saw it your birthday, <laughs> very clever. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just, there was no expectation at all. So I didn't know anybody went to sixth form, let alone university. Right. right? Just nobody did it. You, basically, you, what you wanted, the school I went to, the teachers didn't want to be there, and I don't think the kids wanted to be there. So as soon as the day came when you hit 16, the first thing you wanted to do, I want to go get a job, I want to get money. That was the first thing that we thought of. So education was not really anything you were, you, you were bothered about either yeah. way. So if you got rubbish grades, so what? It wasn't important. Yeah, it's you, interesting that because I think in the last decade probably there's been such a broader acceptance of how you come up through the system. And I guess, you know, 10 plus years ago, it was like you go to school, you go to university mm. and there were some very structured channels. And now with social media and lots of other ways of communicating, it's it seems the barriers to entry are lower in terms of people pursuing entrepreneurialism Absolutely. and I money mean, making. There's lots of different ways to earn money. And I think going through the traditional educational system is very slow. Like my son's like 11. When he hits... 16 even, I'm going to have to have a serious chat with him and say, what do you want to do A-levels for? Do you really want to do them? Mm. I mean, I don't know. You know, Obviously, I, he's going to be in a privileged position, but I'd still say to him, do you really want to do that? Because I think that you know, degrees are very, very inefficient. Three years of your life to mm. learn what I can teach you. I can teach you a marketing degree in a few months probably. Mm. Your expertise, I guess, coming into this was heavily skewed towards marketing. Correct. You'd obviously run a business successfully, so you had kind of entrepreneurial credit there has has that been a really central part of creating a brand as opposed to just a business yeah I think so I think that I'm very passionate about brands I think that brands are the most important thing in most cases you know finance yeah you have to be good yeah operations you have to be good um but ultimately you know if Red Bull had the great best finance people in the world the best operations in the world, but wasn't Red Bull, mm. would it sell as much? No. There's like loads of other examples of copycats of Red Bull, right? Yeah. There. The, the, I think brand is so much more important. Same as know, sports clothing. You know, people will pay more money for a Nike t-shirt than they would a sports direct t-shirt right, or something, right? Yeah. right? Why? Because of the brand. So I think brand is super, super important. And I think a lot of people miss that and neglect that especially entrepreneurs they're too busy focusing on all the other thousand things they've got to do yeah and they forget about how important brand is but it is probably the most important thing the culture here is really interesting and it's a very difficult thing to do that we've seen with brands i guess like monster energy red bull probably Brewdog. this kind of cult which i know is probably not the word you would like to use but this sort of cult following this these fanatical hooligans as obviously they're referred to um you know even here this morning loads of people are wearing the t-shirts loads of people you know people are really inspired and interested and engaged and it's something that many founders try and do and I know something you said to me a long time ago is that culture is not just putting something on the wall you know it's sort of it's got to be felt and seen and touched and tasted by everyone internally 
how easy has it been to scale the culture going from you and James Collier in a room with a huge bag of pea protein figuring out the business to hundreds of staff, hundreds of countries, teams all over the world? How Mm. have you managed to scale that kind of intimate culture where everyone really cares about the business? Uh, I would say it's really hard to do. Mm. In some ways, it's been fairly easy for us. I think we had really solid foundations. You know, we started with a you know a mission statement. We codified our culture fairly early. I've been in the business, let's say, every day of that that journey to reinforce it. And I wanted to be a certain way, like going back to his money things, yeah. not money making things. So I wanted to be a certain way, so I want to be here. So we probably do lots of things that companies wouldn't do if they were trying to optimize for cash. Right, so we've done stuff that's probably outside of that, but we've done some other sort of clever things as well. We've started with um, internal recruiters pretty early, mm. and those internal recruiters have been fundamental in picking the right people because obviously they work within the company and the culture, so they know what it is. Right. So they can find the right people better than an agency could. So I think that's been important. We've got a people team now that helps reinforce that culture as well all the way through, and I think that. I'm not going to over-egg my ability to pick the right people, but I've been involved in every... I've, I've interviewed... We've got two, nearly 250 staff now. I've interviewed, I reckon, 98% of those. A few uh-huh. that I've missed because I've been on holiday or something's happened, I've missed them. So I've been involved in that process. And our recruitment process is quite lengthy. So we get the right people in the door, and then it's much, much easier to do that. Mm. This is a classic example of one bad apple in a barrel could swallow the whole barrel, right? So you don't want to get the wrong people into the business. They might they might not be bad people, they're just not right for your mm. fit. So I think that process has been fundamental. And I think if you have a very high bar, I mean, you typically, if you come through a cure, you've probably been interviewed or spoken to at least six people before you're allowed to join. Right. And each of those person has the ability to veto. Even if I say yes to somebody, one of the junior staff that's been here a long time can veto over me. So I think it's very important to have that throughout and then everybody um, should, we should make less mistakes than you would if you did a much more traditional uh, two-stage interview process. Well, I get the advice I was given was that if you're firing people, it's because your recruitment process is incorrect, right? So you almost want to bring in, you want to, you want to minimize that. Um, opportunity for for a bad hire really sets you back it delays a lot yeah I've always said this it's the same way we're recruiting really good talent they're yeah. probably a, a job which they may love we might headhunt them in and they've got mortgage to pay and I hate the idea of taking somebody out of company where they might be quite happy they come here and it doesn't work for some reason mm-hmm. and we have to part ways and uh, they've got mortgages to pay. They've got families to look after. And I don't like that idea. So I want to have. I want to try harder to make sure you get the right person first time, which does take a lot of work. But it's uh, it's two you know it's two way things. We want them to make sure they're comfortable with us to join. Yeah. They know what they're they're expecting the first day. Because if you think about it, interview process is so fake. It's so unlike the workplace. You're yeah. in a room with not other people. And you're not doing any work. You're very you're, prepared. You're, you're, you've got to be the best you've ever been. Yeah, yeah you're on your best behaviour. They're on their best behaviour. It's all a very fake It's like a first date. Yeah, it's very fake. And so you want it to be more like a uh, the 10th date. You yeah. want it to be more real. And so, yeah, they get time to spend you know, in the office. We want to bring them in as best as we can. We, we test people. We always give them an actual practical test. Because mm. my, my experience has been some people are brilliant at interviews, terrible at work. 
and some people are terrible at interviews and really good at work. Right. So I think the interview process is very, very unreliable. So we try to get away from the traditional interview process. Mm. You mentioned that you are here every day. You're very involved. You're very hands-on. You've been involved in a lot of the interviews. Do you think that there is a possibility for someone to be successful as a part-time entrepreneur? We obviously hear a lot about graft and long hours and there's been a narrative around burnout you know really committing yourself which inevitably in my experience with the businesses I've worked with is a critical part of success but there are a lot of people now wanting and liking the status of being an entrepreneur but perhaps without all of that graft and it's sort of more of a part-time proposition what what are your thoughts on the level of commitment required to do something like what you've done with Fuel? Um, I suppose it depends on how, how talented or how brilliant you are. If you're particularly brilliant or particularly talented, maybe you could get away with it. Elon Musk runs three companies, doesn't he? Or sure. Or more, yeah. right? So he runs, he's part-time. He's a part-time, he's full-time, but he's part-time in each company. Mm-hmm. He can't give it his full uh, care of attention. Yeah. But he's, you know, he's pretty unique, you know, one in the, one in the world like him. Yeah. So, can you are you as talented as him? If not, I think it's pretty unrealistic that you could do it part time. Mm-hmm. The key thing is, is any any industry you're in, you're going to be in a competitive environment. If the other person is doing full time and you decide to do part time, how are you really going to compete unless you're incredibly talented yeah. and you can outperform those with less hours? I think entrepreneurship for me is a lot of grind and there's a lot of things to do, especially if you're starting from scratch. Mm. Sometimes minimal money. You've got to do every job, including hoovering the floor and yeah. tidying up after yourself. And so you've got to do thousands of things. I, I, I look back at my emails once and uh, I was looking at how many emails I'd, I'd written in um, the first few years. And I can't remember exactly the number, but it was a broken hundred a day I was doing on top of all the other jobs you do. Mm. So this was, this was seven days a week mm. for years on, on, on you know, back to back. And I just think it's impractical to be able to be competitive with somebody who's prepared to graph like that mm. if you want to do it part-time. You know, in our complete food world, there is a, there's hundreds of brands that do similar products across the world. Most of those have gone nowhere. I'm guessing because of that sort of reason. Mm. You know, this space is obviously, there is a demand for this type of product. Those products didn't go anywhere. Why not? Mm. Well, you guys also got such a lead, didn't you, in the sense that... We went first, though. Was Soylent first? Soylent were definitely Soylent first. Was there a European? Yeah, there was European ones as well. So we definitely weren't first. What was it about you? Maybe it was the graft. I don't know. I think we we executed incredibly well. I Mm -hmm. think we had very solid foundations. And I think the fact that I wasn't just chasing money uh, made a big difference. It means we went the extra mile. And this is part of the reason why we've got such passionate fans. Yeah. I think that... um, I think we just do everything to a higher standard than a lot of other people, and we really care. And I think it's attention to detail throughout the whole company. You can't just have a great product and terrible service. You can't just have you know brilliant service and terrible delivery system. Mm. It has to be very good across the board. You know, so we do care about everything we do. And um, I think that other brands, maybe they were just might be the first company. I think I definitely made mistakes in my first business that I didn't I didn't make here. Mm. And I think it was very solid foundation from day one. You know, it did take me a long time to get markets. I put a lot of thought into this before I started. Before day one, it wasn't like just 
you know, just appeared. Mm. We bodged it together. I mean, there was a lot of bodging going on. Well, you said it spun out of another business, right? So Correct. it sort of wasn't an obvious path. Yeah. And also, it was something that, yeah, I think that spinning out of a business was quite important. I think some people might have seen the success of Soil and go, right, I'm going to do that. That isn't a very good start to a business. I think Huel spun out of a, a need that I had, mm. that I personally needed. And if you're, if you're your own customer in the early days, you can refine it pretty quickly. Whereas if you're not the customer, you've got to go and find the customer, ask them what they do want and keep asking them and trying to get that way. Mm. Whereas when you're your own customer, when your friends are your customer, then you can you can learn real fast and get it done. It's interesting as well about the fact that you weren't first to market because people think you are because yeah. um, and that's a, a, a great... Well, people think Google's first to market, right? They were way late. Yeah, but... Facebook... Anyway, like lots of examples. It's interesting because there's a there's a great book called Purple Cow, which is all about marketing, which I'm sure you've obviously read. And um, in it, they talk about the slogan of the best thing since sliced bread. Right. And there were there were brands talking about sliced bread for a very long time before Hovis said best thing since sliced bread, and that was right. their marketing campaign. And that phrase has now become kind of synonymous yeah. with them, and obviously it's become kind of integrated into the way that we speak. And I guess to the point about you being a marketeer at your core, the skill was not creating a business on its own that competed with other people in the market. The skill was overlaying the brand that actually got people talking about it. And now to be able to be referred to as the one and the first to market and people can't name, I can't name five brands like you even if they exist somewhere in sort of, you know, the back end of Germany. It's the first one in the person, in the, in the consumer's brain. That's where you want to be. Yeah. Not first to market, it's first to be known in the brain and to be able to stick there. So it's, even if you might be first into someone's head, if it doesn't stick, you yeah. can't remember them, then it doesn't work either. This is why that slogan worked for that particular brand. And mm. then you associated the brand with Hovis. Mm. And so it can be, yeah, the, 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 the brand, this is why brand is so important, that that can stick in your brain. The your identity sticks in your brain better than some of the other ones that existed. So I think the German, sorry, uh, those European brands, yeah. they took a, a play on the word soilence. They called them sort of joiner. And then their logo was very sort of like, light green it didn't even work very well it wasn't very memorable mm. so it didn't stick if it's sticking your brain you're not going to remember it so that's very important to get um you know branded you know that's the whole thing you know, like yeah, how, yeah. How brand, branding someone's brain if you yeah. get it in there it'll stick for a long time have you has anyone got a huel tattoo because i know yeah, in the, in the u.s months to have like <laughs> people with the m on their neck <laughs> i have seen what i think there was one the other day that i saw as well I mean, both James and me have talked about it quite a few times. Yeah. Never, never got around to doing it. I wonder if that's part of the interview process, round six, Maybe. is how committed are you to, <laughs> to the business? Um, in the early days, you guys did a lot of PR as part of your marketing. Yeah. There were some negative yeah. press articles and I guess probably lack of understanding. You were mm. almost too early mm. for journalists to really understand that integration. I know also you did a lot of customer service. You would, you know, tell people they were wrong yeah. about what they thought. Does that affect you differently now? Does it still bother you when someone says, um, you know, it tastes rank? Uh, Which I know, you know, isn't yeah, ideal. Yeah, no, but I... Is that because no. enough people think it's great? It's sort of offsets? Or are you just less connected to those? You can't please all the people in time if i took you to the best restaurant in the world i'm sure there'll be several things that you don't like sure right and there'll be something in there you won't like yeah uh, so you can't please all the people all the time taste is very very subjective 
What I do know is that our product in terms of nutrition, which is the primary purpose of food, taste is not the primary purpose of food. Your body is supposed to be ingesting nutrition, right? This is why most animals don't really care what they eat. They eat anything, right? right? We are animals, you know. Your body needs a certain amount of nutrition. And if you think taste is the most important thing, you can make yourself very un- unwell, mm-hmm. make yourself very ill, you know. If you go to a hospital and you get put onto, you know, drips, and you can be fed and you can be maintained, your body perfectly maintained for a very long time without you know, tasting anything, mm. any texture, any taste, because we know what your body needs. If we give you that, you will be a healthier person. Healthier people feel better. Mm. Um, taste is in your mouth for seconds, mm. but your body is around for decades, years. So it's much more important to be a healthy person than it is to have this, this little excitement of a bit of taste in your mouth at a certain time. If, obviously, if you get both, brilliant. Yeah. But if it's a choice between one or the other, nutrition is far superior to taste. How do you use fuel? Do you is it every meal? Is it one meal? No, it's um, in the working week. I typically have it for breakfast and lunch and afternoon snack. Uh, sometimes now we've got our complete protein powder. I sometimes have that just before bedtime as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been trying to put a bit of weight on recently because I was probably a little bit too slender. So I've tried to put a bit of weight on. Is that why you put the gym in the office? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, sometimes I have the protein just for bedtime. And then typically, uh, even as the weekends, this is like the misconception. It's like, sure, this thing you need to have for every bloody meal. Oh, Christmas uh, Day, uh, you're just oh, miserable. Yeah, you're so, miserable yeah. <laughs> so that was, we've always fought against that. No, absolutely. You're never going to replace your Saturday night uh, takeaway or meal with uh with fuel. That's ridiculous. Nobody would do that, or very few people would do that. It's replacing your inconvenient meals, which is typically your working week, breakfast and lunch when you're on the go and you're moving fast. Mm-hmm. When you started, in addition to wanting to be nutritionally complete, obviously fuel, not obviously, but fuel is a combination of the words human fuel. Correct. And it's all about, um, you know, eat complete. You had a mission to also reduce the amount of food waste there was a big sustainability factor involved and with the growth of the global population from seven to nine billion or whatever it's going to be you know having an opportunity to have an impact on that was important to you for people starting businesses now it's quite difficult to work out what cause to pick because Everyone's got to be an activist, a feminist, have lots of different causes, be completely sustainable, have a diverse workforce, have uh, whatever is on the list of kind of how brands are supposed to be set up now. Mm. Do you feel pressure to speak to multiple causes or do you feel like very specifically you have a trajectory to impact one specific thing about the planet i just think no i don't feel pressure to do that i feel that um you can only do what you can do and i think it's easier to focus on the stuff which is when you make when we make a decision one of our values is do the right thing so if there's a choice on the table left or right which is the one's the right thing to do so there's usually a when you ask it on those individual questions i'm trying to think this massive overarching we know fundamentally she'll be in a vegan product plant-based means that it's going to be very good for the planet to Mm -hmm. start with then it comes down to the more specific questions about packaging choices they're very long questions i've spent well i i would absolutely dispute anybody says i've done less than a thousand hours thinking about bloody packaging honestly it's ridiculous how much time we put into it 
So this is a complicated question. There's complicated answers. So, so I don't feel pressure because I know that ultimately, as long as you, you can put your hand on heart and say, I've done, done the right thing, mm. then you, you sort of, I feel fine. You know, I know that the product itself, you know, we're not making missiles or something for the world. You know, we're making something good fundamentally. Mm. Yeah, of course it can be better. We're in plastic bottles but they're the best choice at the moment for that type of product. Mm. So no, I don't feel particular pressure. If anybody says, oh, you're, you're terrible business, you your plastic bottles, I would I could argue with them for days. Yeah, great. I can't wait for that. I <laughs> good interaction online. I heard you mention once that one of the biggest challenges when you set up the business was like finding a food manufacturer. Yeah. What was that process like? Did you, were you talking to people, were you Googling, were you meeting, mm-hmm. like, if someone was setting up a business now looking for a manufacturer, what oh had God. you learned from it's that very food, The food industry is a very secretive industry. Like no manufacturer has a particularly good website. They, they're quite, typically they're turning business down left, right and centre. They right. don't want people to approach them, especially they don't want startups. Most factories, the way they're set up, they're factories, they're very systemised. Mm-hmm. And if you come along and say, well, I want a different shape bottle, and I want this in it, and I want you to do this to it, they'll go, Fuck off. Go away. Yeah, I don't want it. It's too much hassle and you're going to go nowhere. You're going to die. Most businesses die very quickly. So I'm going to change my line to please you and you're going to order £5,000 from me. I've got customers here that are queuing up to spend millions of pounds with me and I make what they want already so I don't have to change anything. Mm. So it's very hard to find manufacturers. They typically don't. They're they're busy and uh, and no brand's going to tell you where they get their stuff made because they don't want to give away their secret sauce. So it's, it's, it's tough. Right, you're going to have to use every trick of the trade mm. you can possibly find to find people, and that means it might be asking someone, going on LinkedIn, trying to drill, drill through people who work somewhere before and asking them questions, mm. or you know, go to food fairs, do anything you possibly can, but it ain't easy. No, have you changed your manufacturers much? Uh, we still work with the original one. Do you? Yeah, still work with them. We've added additional manufacturers for sure. Uh, and we have changed manufacturers several times in different for different reasons, different categories. Um, we obviously we brought a new categories out to our new manufacturers. We now work, you know, all our powder for America now is made in America, for example. Yeah. Uh, because of the supply chain issues, it used to take four weeks to get to America. Now it takes twelve to sixteen weeks to get to America. So it was just really problematic. What so are people doing? Cycling it. God there. knows. I don't know how it's happened. They said it's COVID. I think well, yeah, sort of convenient. Yeah, sort of gone, and the prices like went crazy as well. Yeah. I think they went ten x price to get to America. Jesus, yeah. and the formula is different in the US, right? Different tiny, tiny bit, tiny bit, because yeah. the Americans have a slightly different nutritional profile from the UK or Europe, but it's not a lot. Just put some sugar cubes in. No, no. <laughs> Actually, we did some taste testing, and everybody perceives Americans have a sweeter tooth. We did some taste testing fairly recently, and it's actually the other way around. Really? Yeah. Ah, mm. sound corrected. Um, you appointed a CEO, yeah. James McMaster. Yeah. Um, really interesting. A lot of entrepreneurs and founders want to hang on to the CEO title, yeah. want to be in control. Yeah. Quite a big hire for you in yeah. terms of uh, making sure you got that right. Obviously, you have. Um Tell me, was that easy delegation? Were you like ready to give up that role? You didn't want to be involved in that. Yeah. What was that process like? Super easy for me, really. I I I was starting to crack. I was working on stuff. Being a CEO is not an easy job. You you're very you're spread incredibly thin. Mm-hmm. And you've got a lot of responsibilities. You can't let things go wrong. I quite like to get my teeth into something and probably go too deep into something. 
which means that trying to do that on everything means you you end up just have no time left to, to do anything. Mm. I think the final nail in the coffin was for me was a one month I did did zero on marketing and brand, which is what I'm good at. And I thought, what the fuck else goes on here? I'm like good at this stuff, and I've got no time to do it. I'm dealing with HR, legal, operations, finance, all the stuff that I don't particularly like or get excited by, and I'm not very good at. So I'm spending all my time doing stuff that I don't like or find enjoyment from, mm. and I'm not very good at. And the stuff that I'm good at, and I want to do, I've got no time to do. I thought this is this is this is this is wrong. Is that a misconception that founders should be good at everything? Uh, I think I don't know. The founders have to be good at everything to start with. Yeah, just means to what level you're good at. You can be good to you know level two out of ten. You can't be ten out of ten at it. No, I think that's it. I think it's virtually impossible. You have to eventually recruit a very good team under you. Mm. So some people will do it that way around. You'll get a very solid team and you just like steer them. So that is one option. But we were still fairly young at the time. It was only like a couple of years in. And it just felt like I just didn't want to do this. I know what I want to do. This was supposed to be a lifestyle business for me. And I want to, I want to do marketing stuff. That's what I want to do. That's what I like. Brand's important for me. I want to focus on the product, you know, the branding, and that's the, that's the important bit. I just don't want to deal with legals, etc. No. Big hire CEO. How long did it take? Not very long. I found him in an hour. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah. I thought you were going to say 12 months. No, I found him How did you quick. find him? So what I did is uh, LinkedIn went on there. I, I decided I wanted somebody from the food industry because I had zero food experience and we were a food product. I thought it might be handy. Sure. <laughs> so, I thought, so I went on there and thought, well, there's no point in hiring for like a massive, like, I don't know, Walker's Crisps or something like that would be too big. So I thought, right, I want to find some sort of cooler, smaller brands that had been successful. Mm-hmm. So I've made a short list of, say, 20 or 30 brands. You put those into the LinkedIn recruiter and put in the keyword CEO, marketing director, MD, operations director, sort of keywords, sort of, sort of areas that I wanted. Mm. Pumped out, I don't know. 30, 40 people, scanned through pretty quick, saw about three that I thought would look good, and then handed those over to the recruiter and said, can you get these people in for interview? Great. And they said yes? Uh, yeah, I think all of them said yes. They'd come in. And uh, we had a board at the time. The board says, that's I'm saying, that's too easy. You need to use a professional to do this. Right. It's really important. So I think we used a professional as well. And they put a few people forward. Oh, uh, yeah. Good, solid candidates, but uh, no, James was the best. Yeah. yeah. You have a co-founder, James Collier, who yeah. is a nutritionist who yeah. created the, the formula, the yeah. product that we see. Has it been easy working with a, a co-founder in that yeah. capacity? You've had your own parts that you look after within the business. Yeah. yeah, I think it's been easy. I think one key difference, I think one thing I would say to other entrepreneurs, be very, very careful when you launch, it's very easy to throw shares around when you launch. Right. And uh, that can be very detrimental long-term. If you start with two, which is quite common, people mm. have advised two is better than one. problem with two, so you start with 50-50, mm. so you stop working and I'm grafting, I'm going to get pissed off with yeah, you. Yeah, we're going to have a right? problem. We're going to have a problem quick. 
And if you both got 50-50 and there's a decision, you want to go left, I want to go right, what do you do? Mm. So I think that's bad as well. I think three people is even worse because you've diluted yourself to a third of the company before you even started. Mm. I think that can be really bad. So, so was the process that you came up with the idea and then you sort of found James to help I, and therefore gave, it wasn't a 50-50 split? No, it was nowhere near a 50-50 split. So basically I started it, done all the work, put all the money in. James was just a contractor. I'd literally hired him for a few hundred, well, I think less than a thousand pounds to do the original sort of consult for me. Basically hired him as a consultant. Right. And then we got on well. So we stayed in touch and every now and again I'd bell him and ask him certain questions and I started hiring on a sort of day rate basis moving forward. So the company was launched before he came on board as co-founder. It was right. already live. So I had the vast majority of the shares with me and my ex-wife. And then when James came on board, we did a deal. So he got a, a small stake, which was, was going to turn into a significant amount of money. But it's still a small stake in comparison to overall. And I think that's really important to have somebody who's in charge of your business. I think having three people in charge is always a disaster, yeah. personally. I think two people is very risky too. I think you want to have one person who is the who is the lead and they can set the direction and you have other people around you that are the founding team. You don't have to be founders mm. because you just dilute yourself too much because over the life of a company, you will end up getting diluted more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And I can remember a horror story about a guy. I remember this was, I remember reading this one. He sold his business. I, I sort of knew him. He was like a blogger that I followed. And... Uh, he sold his business for 32 million quid, and in those days, it was like a massive amount of money. Still, well, still is. Still is, yeah. Still is. Just with dollars. Sure. He got zero. Got zero out of that. So he founded it, running for about eight years, and got zero out yeah, of that. Yeah, created person. all that value. He did all the work, really, but because he'd had investors over the time, his mm. share was so small, and they get what they call a preference. A preference basically means they get their money out first. Mm. So if the company doesn't grow, you might get a valuation of point A. So they say, I'm going to put 10 million quid in and the preference could be a 6x preference or 3x preference. And that means if they don't if they don't get 30 million back, they sorry, they get the first 30 million back. So if it hits 32, they get a whole lot. So you've got zero. Mm. So it can happen. It's not a good place to be. No, so I thought I'm not going to have any of that. I mean, it's, it's a good point because I think the one of the things that, um, you know, if I've listened to panels or talks or whatever one of the things that entrepreneurs often ask is about raising money and it is seen in many different ways by different people Mm. someone I spoke to uh Alex who founded Truva said you know it's not a big deal it's just part of the process like we had to raise money to grow Mm. other people it's this relentless pursuit it is probably slightly you know it is different for men and women it depends Mm. on the sector but it is a really complex negotiation for someone who doesn't have financial experience in terms of as you say um shares the language around um you know what you get at the end and also you want to make the right choice with investors so they follow their money you don't want to end up with loads and loads of different people and voices you want the right alignment you didn't have an investor initially presumably it was yourself and, and your success previously you then did raise 20 million with Highland yeah. Capital yeah. Europe. Why did you decide to raise that money? And do you, was that an integral part of the growth? We probably could have done it without it. So I could probably talk all day about like raising money. I think there's definitely a culture of raising money is great. You've, oh, I actually out for dinner yesterday and somebody said, oh, that guy raised 30 million quid or whatever it was. And I went, and? 
Mm. Like racing's not. So that's not impressive to no, you. No, it's not a success. I Why? Don't think. Well, because it's not your money. You've not done anything. You've taken somebody else's money. Basically, what you've done is you've taken money which is not yours. Yeah. And you've given a big chunk of your company away in exchange. Right. You haven't achieved anything. You've lost. You sort of lost. You might. But do a lot of businesses not have the ability to grow without that cash? Absolutely. Of course, you can grow without cash. Of course, you can. Um, Cut your cloth accordingly. I think the problem with raising money sometimes makes you very, very. Uh, lazy fat right. right you're not official with your money because it's somebody else's money you burn it like mad you're not tight no they, they, they will just they, almost sometimes people can encourage you to, to go through it go for growth go for growth spend it spend it spend it you, you're very inefficient with your spend you're spending it badly and then you run out of money and then you have to go and raise again you have to go and raise again and again and again you get addicted to it and so the business just becomes this sort of money before raising before you know your shares are going down yeah. to zero very quick or you get this preference thing and if the business doesn't fulfill its potential you walk away the business gets sold a big chunky number and you get zero mm. it's, um, I, I I'm not privileged no, I've left school at 16 right Yeah. well but, you created an opportunity that allowed you to have a bit exactly. more choice right? yeah there's different ways to do it so of course some people you know say you're an 18 year old you've got a brilliant idea yeah it's pretty hard to do if you haven't got uh, rich parents or you start a business first yeah you might have to raise the money but don't think about it as like a big win think about it it might be a necessity but don't don't be proud oh yeah I raised it really quick mm. that's, I don't think that's something to be proud about personally do you think part of it is that the way that we see entrepreneurialism in the media is these very extreme examples where people have, you know, it's the Ben Francis, it's to a degree you, you know, there's sort of huge growth, really exciting businesses that have really captured people's imagination and have very impressive numbers attached to them, that there's this sprint mentality. And it's like, you cannot operate at that speed for more than three to five years. So there's this idea of exit. And if you're raising VC money, the exit from that, whether it's private equity or elsewhere, or even IPO, would be within that time frame of three to five years. That it's like, how can I do the most, the quickest before yeah. I burn out? Basically, is sort of the, the the narrative. And so, the the idea of tagging in as much cash as possible yeah. has just become part of that cycle. Yeah, I think it's definitely. Uh, you hear so much about it because it's a big number. It sounds sexy. Yeah. It sounds impressive, um, but you should try and avoid it as much as you can. I think it's it's um, it can make the business bad. You know, it makes you the wrong type of business. I mean, it's definitely successful businesses that you know. I'm speaking. A, I raised my. Is what I'm saying. Like, yeah. but I have done yeah. it. The reason we did it, we did it as a massive insurance policy. But yeah. because we were three and a half years in when we did it. It, we gave away a fairly modest stake. It was uh, in the in the sort of low double digits right. percentage. It was a small bit. It wasn't like giving away thirty percent of your company, which a lot of people do. Fairly small numbers in mm. the early days, and, the, and you know you're going to have to do it again and again, multiple times. You're going to yeah. get diluted. If you can resist for several years, like we did, do that. Get scrappy. Get really fucking scrappy. Learn how to do everything as cheap as you possibly can, because mm. every day you can resist raising you're going to get diluted less, right? So you want to be diluted as, as mm. less as, as least as possible. So resist it as much as you can. Find a fucking way to get it done and don't spend the money. So be very, very tight. Be very, very efficient with what you're doing and don't spend money. I mean, we're in quite flash offices now, mm. but we weren't to start yeah, with. I remember it. coming to that, it was a box <laughs> and it was there were four desks and mm. there was just bags of, 
yeah, whatever it, it was in, and it was like a, it looked like a storeroom. I mean, no offense. Yeah, well, but... I started out in my garage. Yeah, and then when we outgrew the garage, I've got the smallest little warehouse I could get, which is I don't know that not much bigger than this room. Yeah, and then we went into some little shared offices. You know, the typical ones with the blue, the blue carpet tiles and the white yeah, sort of partition yeah, yeah. walls. No branding, no nothing. And this is out in Aylesbury, where you know a square foot is. I don't know, five or six pounds or something yeah. like that. It's not no, it's, it's not, not shortage. Yeah, so right. <laughs> stay at you know, you, I, you know, resist those types of things. You can you know work. You don't need those flash offices. You don't need that mm. stuff. You don't need to, you know. I uh, all my design work I got done in the early days. I went on to sort of Beehive, Hans and Dribble and found individuals working out in their bedrooms yeah. to do the design work. Think you need to flash the agency. No way. Don't do that. Mm. No, you don't need those things. People think they do. They don't. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a really, really good point. I mean, this office is amazing, and it's obviously it was a it was a big deal for you because yeah. it was a big part of your growth and kind of the next step. It wasn't day one, obviously. Was the part of the decision to be here about family and balance and not having to commute into London Absolutely, and not being in London yeah, as well as cost? Yeah, so I live in Aylesbury. All the first, this is our fifth office we've moved into. So mm. this, this, the first four were all in Aylesbury. This one is 10 minute drive from Aylesbury. That's why we're here. Um, but there's, but it works out really nicely in some ways. Like people said, you have to be in London. That's where talent is. You have to be mm-hmm. there. You know, that's what people said, said to me. I went, I resisted that. I said, no, I disagree with you. I think ta- talent's equally distributed. And lots of people who work in London, the talented people don't live in London, right? They live right. outside London. And also when you're out here, there's less competition for talent. Right. right. So we've had a couple of people poached from us recently from, well, sorry, one person got poached from us from our London team. Uh, some people have left around here as well. But in London, there's obviously hundreds, thousands of other companies that are right on your doorstep that could be trying to poach your, your team. Mm-hmm. But out here, you know, <laughs> if you live here, then, I would, um, then you know, Hill's uh, the, the best, the best company, bet, yeah. The best bet could work for, right? I think we're the best here. So we have a lot less competition mm-hmm. out here. So, yeah, you might be slightly less less talent, but still the pool of people. I think we did a one-hour radius in terms of driving. There's still four million people from here. Right. So it's still big, but you've got a lot less competition. Uh, you've got a lot less rent to pay. Uh, so it's just net net a better place, I think, and it's 10 minutes drive from my house, which is perfect. Perfect. We hear a lot about social media setting unrealistic standards and expectations for people particularly entrepreneurs we're bombarded constantly whether it's LinkedIn or Instagram with someone who's just raised someone who's just sold someone who's just done something really exciting mm. do you have personally a good relationship with social media I don't, I don't take any notes of it really well now that you're 50 you've got to sign off <laughs> from any kind of connected platform yeah true uh, I not affected no I don't think so I'm affected no I think I've done a tiny little bit on LinkedIn. I've done a tiny little bit on like um, uh, Instagram, and it's flipping. It's quite hard work. Mm. It's time consuming, and again, I'm quite ruthless with my time. I just felt like it's very easy. It's sucked. I feel like I get sucked into it, mm. and for me personally, I just couldn't be bothered to do it. Mm. And um, uh, and and then browsing. Yeah, of course, I'll browse. Just, you know, when you've got 10 minutes fridge, think I want a little bit of entertainment. I might go into reels or something and find something funny. But typically, it's more, I'm not bothered about people raising money or people like looking particularly flash with their car or something. It's more like, I don't know, dogs being silly or something like yeah. that. It's more entertaining for me. Um, 
So no, I don't get. I don't. I, I was. I'm. I'm lucky that I was brought up in a time when social media didn't exist. The internet didn't even exist. Yeah. I remember the first time I ever saw the internet. I was. I was at uni. I think I was about 26 years old. That's the first time I even saw the internet. This that will was... blow people's minds. I had someone in my office say to me a few years ago, like junior, 20 years old, say, "How did you get news before the Daily Mail online?" <laughs> And I was like, was oh, like it rhymes still... with P45, get out. <laughs> it's really, but it's hard for people, you know, yeah, to, to kind of comprehend when something yeah. dominates in that way. This was, this. there was no internet at home, right? This was in the days, I, you know, I was brought up on a mobile phone, right? Yeah. I remember the first mobile phone was, I think I was about 18, one of our bosses walked in, he had like a briefcase, and the handle, <laughs> the phone, the handle was the phone, and the briefcase was the battery. Yeah, that's good. how big it was. Yeah. So that's, that's uh, the first time I was about 18. And then I think I saw the internet, that was about 26. I would have been, it would have been 95, something like that. Mm-hmm. And this was, if you search for anything, if you downloaded a picture, it would, it would be pixel line by pixel line. It took about half an hour to download a picture. This was at the uni, which had the fast broadband. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Do you was, remember when you had broadband and if you picked up the house phone, you could yeah, use absolutely, it? absolutely, yeah. You're like, get off the internet. Yeah, it used to cost <laughs> like loads a minute. And then it was FreeServe came in, which was the big sort of, movement of people using insects and then you could just pay one monthly fee you could before it was like per minute so you right. could literally use the internet for like a few minutes and jump off it quick get off it so it's costing money so yeah i'd like it was brought up pre-social media pre-internet so i've not got the same sort of uh connection with it yeah so it's a little bit alien for me so you're not on tiktok i absolutely not on tiktok <laughs> it's a shame um i wanted to ask about the most valuable investments that you've made to scale the business and and if relevant where have you wasted money so most valuable is really hard it's like what's your favorite film i don't know depends depends Um, on the day most valuable investments i think that uh my time pre-launch was really valuably uh, used Mm. i spent a lot of time thinking through yeah so if you if you start off anything on the wrong path it's very hard to correct it after you've yeah. gone down that path it's really hard so think about all the paths you've got to possibly go down i sort of i've used the example of playing chess before if you think about playing chess you just make one move at a time you just blinds the rest of the board you can make some stupid decisions right so try and think about you know two moves ahead three moves ahead and think about what other people are going to do to counter that as well right. so a good chess player will be five six seven moves ahead right um so try and do that so think things through you know, across the whole of your business, and try and think about, try and get, try and think about what it could look like if it goes where you want it to go, right? Not just and, and think about the problems you're going to hit as well. Mm. So I think that was valuable investment. I think spending time on the name, I think the name's been quite influential in terms of where we've got to. I think it's very sort of memorable. Going back to this, trying to get the brand into people's head, and uh, lots of other brands in our category have got quite poor names. Mm. I think I think that's been a real hindrance. So I think name is the one thing that's never going to change in your company. Every other single thing in your company is going to change. Are you going to tell me that you came up with the name in five minutes? No, that took a fucking long time. Did it? Yeah. Were there like, what were some of the ones that didn't make it? <laughs> I've done this before. I don't want to do this. It's so embarrassing. Tell like, me why. Oh, no, 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 no. not going to do it. So, um, Are they on a list somewhere? Yeah, I think I've already got the list. But it took, I, that was a valuable investment of time. I think that probably took, I don't know, a few weeks on and off. Okay. And that was to come up with a list. So this was just paper names, you know, literally just me writing them out. Yeah. And then when I found this designer that I actually did find on Dribble, I think, the designer that actually did the logo at the end, he then did 
I think I had three names at the time. He mm. did three of them in, in different styles, everything from he did some handwritten fonts all the way through to different lo- uh, different fonts and stuff like that, and did different styles of logos. And then when I saw Hill written like that, it just felt right and looked right. And then that was it. It was sort of done. You just knew. And was he complete? Did that then follow? Yeah. We don't use that much anymore. No? No. Have a word. Get that <laughs> off the wall. <laughs> um, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given about building or running a business? Best piece of advice? Um, I don't know if I've got any one piece of advice. Oh, That's come brilliant. on. Um, well, we talked about failing fast. I mean, has there been... Yeah, I thought that's great advice, really. I, I mean, I don't like failing at all, so I know you have to, but... Well, what, okay, fine. Scrap that. Scrap what, that. what piece of advice would you give to someone now who was a young entrepreneur who is starting out? I mean, I've written... One of my... Talking about social media, I did, I did a long post, and I think it's back, came up with 13 things. That would be my one piece. Go and read that. Yeah, right. Link in bio. Perfect. <laughs> Go and read that, because that was that was uh, a lot of advice in a very short, compact uh, post. So it's 13 things, and one of them is start, right? You've got to start. Yeah. You can fucking read. You can listen to as many podcasts as you like, but if you don't ever start, you're never really going to learn, because you have to. You do have to fail. You have to fuck things up mm. before you know. And um, you've got to get stuck into something, but do something that's not a freaking 10-year project. You right. want to do something that you're going to have a little play at, have a test of it. Because you could, it's like driving a car. Right? The first car you get, don't get a Ferrari for your first car. Mm. You're going to scrape it. You're going to crash it probably. So get a crappy car, mm-hmm. you drive it around for a year, and you'll be a better driver. Mm. So you want to do something along those sorts of lines. But that that, that thing, I think, was a wise piece of advice for anybody, mm. any entrepreneur, read those 13 things. Is that on your LinkedIn? Yeah. I don't have to get it. Fine, I'll find it. If you find I'll it, you find post it. a link to that. But I think that was that was good. That was Everybody responded really well to that. So that was really good advice. And so that would be the, the one thing, Thir- 13 different things. You started the business in 2015, so just, just shy of seven years ago. The numbers are huge in terms of what you've achieved in yeah. terms of sort of valuation, revenue, etc. Do you ever feel overwhelmed about what you've created? Do you walk in here and ever look around and think, fuck, I mean, this is I this is something I've done and, and created? Is it ever overwhelming? No, because you're in it every day, so you see it coming before you get there. So wherever you are in time, you're always thinking ahead. Yeah. This is me anyway. So I'm always thinking, I'm, I'm saying I'm underwhelmed, but I'm sort of like, I know we're going to be that much bigger in you know, a year's time, three years' mm. time, five years' time. So I can see those where we're going. Mm. So now, I'm not saying underwhelmed is the wrong way to say it, but yeah, I can see how we can be much, much bigger in the future. Mm. I think one of my... Blessings and curses is that I'm um, I'm never content. I'm never particularly um, what's the word satisfied. Yeah, I think that uh, you know if any any time anybody uh, does it, you know if I do any work or something, as soon as we launch something, I know 15 things I want to do to fix it. So that's good because you get you have higher standards, you get mm-hmm. stuff done. But the problem is you can't necessarily sit back and go, that's brilliant. But if it was brilliant, would you would you be where you are today? Because I think you have to be. I you have to be like that. It works for me to be that mm. way. Is that something that's different in your personal and professional life? Do you do you find it easy to switch off and relax and enjoy the things yeah. that you do, or do you feel that you're critical of your personal situation? You know, to use your restaurant example, or holiday, or whatever. Yeah. Are you constantly like? 
could have been could have been better. Yeah, I think it probably is the same. Yeah, I think my personal life is pretty similar. That people complain of me sometimes because I am a bit like that. That I never. Uh, I think I'm quite easygoing, but at the same time, I'm never quite pleased with stuff. So somebody does something for me, it's uh, or I do something for myself. You know, like I don't even like. I used to, you know, in the early days when I had a house, I paint and decorate. I used to hate doing it because I I knew where all the bits were that I didn't like. Right. If somebody else paints a room. I've got to search for where the bit of the fuck up is. Right. But if you do it yourself. You know exactly where it is, and you can't take your eye off right. it. Right. So someone else says you get a week of grace of enjoying it, and then you find where they <laughs> fucked up, and then you and then it's ruined. Yeah. So my next question was about. Do you ever enjoy the achievements of the brand or take time or is it just a relentless pursuit? Perhaps you've already answered that, but um, have there been milestones when you hit 100 million meals, when you hit, you know, whatever the revenue number was that you wanted? Because you said early on that you thought if I could make a thousand people yeah. engage with this. And yeah. you have also said that if the business was a lot smaller, yeah. you'd still be very happy. Yeah. So do you... This presumably is all like cream and cherry on top, right? Where you are now compared yeah. to what you thought at the beginning. Do you are there milestones that you do pat yourself on the back and go, we, we did we did well? We do try and celebrate success internally. That's not me doing yeah, that. Yeah, do you do that then? Or is that just saying team well done? Team do it. The team do do the little celebrate successes. So we do do that. And we do try and we probably could do more. Me personally, no, I don't typically do it that way. I have sort of t- learned to, you know, try and enjoy it more because, mm. um, you know, time's running out. In my life, I'm 50 now. I'm working on a 10-year rise. I've got 10 years left. I know it's a bit silly, but just that's the sort of. I, I think you have to think you're not going to live forever. Mm. So I'm working on like a 10-year rise and going right. Okay, we start doing stuff. Start sort of enjoying the the uh, the fruits of the of, of what you've achieved. So mm. I am trying to do that a bit more. Um, I recently I've got a, a house. That I'm, We've knocked out building a brand new house, can't be a really nice house soon. So now I'm not a big spender, I'm not even rich, right? Because I mean people paper rich. I'm mm. not technically rich at the moment because um, my money, all my money went back into sort of Hill and it's on paper and mm. we did a raise. I did get some money at that point. But you know, the, the the yeah, I ain't got it at the moment. Mm. Do you see yourself doing something else after Hule? Is your brain sort of busy with thinking about the next thing, or do you feel just very in and committed to this where yeah, you are now? I, I feel like there hasn't, there wasn't a before Huel, and I can't see an after Huel. Yeah. At the moment, for me, I've, I've thought about it, and people have asked me the question before, and I think my answer is at the moment, no, I'm a thousand percent in Huel at the moment. Mm. Um, when you, when that time comes, what would I do? Um, Starting a business, this has been this is nearly ten years, right? You right. said that we're nearly seven years old. Well, I started it two to three years before, and there was a business before that, and there was yeah. a business before that. So really, I've been doing this for a very long time now. So you could easily argue I've been in Shaw for ten years. This is assume it's taken ten years to get here. Mm. So if I started another one, that's another ten years. If I only got ten years left, have you got that in you? That's it. <laughs> have I got it in me to do it again to commit to that amount? Maybe of you work? could do it in five years. Maybe the next one. So. But I think that you've got to, I think life has to be a work-life balance. And, mm. you know, this was started with, yeah, trying to find a 1,000 true fans, trying to find a three-day week. That's yeah. what I wanted to do. Um, she always got to the stage now where, in theory, I can still help steer it. I can mm. still help move us forward. 
but I probably could get down to a couple of days a week or maybe yeah. even less because we've got 250 people now. How critical am I in the business anymore? Mm. Well, no one here even recognises you, so <laughs> I mean, probably not. You, you've talked before about burnout. Yeah. Um, it's not something I want to labour too much, but does your brain misbehave? Do you feel like, is, is, is working a four-day week just part of trying to claw back some of that time yeah. for yourself, doing the things you want to do? Yeah. I definitely burned myself out before. Around that time when James, when I hired James, I definitely burned myself out it took a while to, to recover. I was just like, there was days when I couldn't even go into work. Yeah. I was laid on the sofa. Um, Which presumably is quite scary if you're someone who's got a natural um, affinity to work. And I've definitely got anti pants without doubt, right? I can't sit still for very long at all. Um, so, yeah, I did, I, did, uh, I did struggle. I did... Um, it wasn't a good time. No. So it was... Um, uh, it was a needs must though. I, I've said to people before, I said that uh, I think that you've got gritty teeth sometimes mm. and um, you're trying to get a flywheel going, you're trying to do something that's never been done quite that, that way before, mm. so you ain't going to do it by just doing a four-day week or something. I think you do have to grit your teeth and get through it, but mm. what you've got to tell yourself is you're in a sprint mode and that sprint mode is not going to last forever. Yeah, It might last years and that's quite tough, but, um, you know, three years out of your life, out of a 60-year life or 70-year life or yeah. whatever, it's not that big a percentage, mm. and the rewards at the back of it could be immense. So why not just fucking screw your teeth and get through it? So sacrifice for you is a big Correct. part of it. Yeah, you had to sacrifice without doubt. And um, I think you have to be a certain way inclined. I quite like it when, when things are tough. I think if things are too easy, I get bored. Mm. So I do like it, it's just that maybe that's a bit extreme. Yeah. What is the biggest myth or assumption about running a business? I mean, you've obviously had two previously, so you probably <clears throat> knew certain things, but is there anything you thought about it that hasn't hasn't turned out to be true? Um, maybe that you'd be really rich and have loads of cash by now. Yeah, true. <laughs> Uh, I don't know really what the uh, the assumptions are. I think if you if you say, I guess like you know more autonomy on your time, more freedom, more money, can, more you can have that if mm. you choose that. You can you can choose to do that. I mean, my first business, I was probably getting up quite early, and I was done by two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so there's different types of businesses, mm. right? I think the first business was 100 percent um, web, yeah. no product, no customer service. Uh, very very small team. Mm. You know, most of the most of the time is me, and that was that sort of um, almost digital nomad type of thing. I could have been anywhere doing anything. Mm. You know, it was it was it was much more easy than this. This is two hundred and fifty people. Yeah, this is a physical product that could kill someone if you get it wrong. Mm. This is a global business. This is um, you know stock control. This is much more complicated. Mm. So there's different types of businesses. If you choose, you want to have a lifestyle business that is um, gives you freedom. Uh, to spend time to do your whatever you want to do, yeah, you probably could do that in a few hours. I mean, the first book I read that sort of probably pretty motivating at the time was the four-hour work with Tim Ferriss. Yeah. If anybody wants to read that, that basically says pretty much what he's saying is, you know, life is short. Make sure you spend, you have many retirements throughout your life and uh, you can have a, a, a low number of hours, maybe four hours a bit extreme, but you yeah. probably work two or three days a week. Outsource loads of stuff. There's loads of people around the world that can help you if you want to outsource big parts of your role, mm. but I would say if you want an easy life, don't do physical products. Physical products, you know, hard, they say hardware is hard. It is hard. Yeah. It is much harder than doing a, a virtual business. Mm, for sure. How do you keep learning? Podcasts, that's my number one by a long, long way. How do you choose? 
How do I choose what do podcast you find, to find? Do you sort of look up individual people, or do you just have your favourites? I mean, you, you pick them up along the way. I don't, I don't know whether there's a clean way to, to say to go and find them. You start, listen. If, you, if you're learning, carry on listening. If you don't, move on. Yeah. But I mean, I think there's so many. Or, or yeah, search for people. Once you hear someone, another one is you. Yeah, once you've heard someone and you like what they're saying, just search for their name. And you find the other podcast. If they've been on another podcast, you listen to other podcasts by that podcaster. Mm. So I think that's how I've done it in the past. So I found you know, there's really sensible people in the world. And like you say, you said Elon Musk, you can find him on loads of different podcasts. Uh, and they might be good quality podcasts. If you decide to go on there, that'd be a good starting point. Mm. So pick on the entrepreneurs you like. We talked about Jim Sharp, so pick up Ben and see mm. what podcast he's done. He talks a lot of sense, listen to the stuff he's done. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, Steve's obviously podcast is yeah. very good. He has really good guests on there. Jay Comfrey's podcast, he has really good guests on there. You can learn a lot from that sort of stuff. Yeah. So there's tons of podcasts out there, but information is all fucking totally fucking free. Yeah, and it's so easy. It's so so easy. passive in terms yeah. of learning. And the only, my only advice with that as well would be do do listen to podcasts when you're doing nothing. Don't try and work and listen at the same time. It's right. so hard to do. You want to be doing something really boring, painting, walking a dog, doing something where your brain is sort of starting to wander and get bored. Yeah. And if you're listening to something, it seeps into your brain a lot better. How do you define success? Um, I think, I think you want to be, I like the idea of being sort of competitive to a certain extent, of being winning something. So if you, if you use football as a, an example, you know, you can you could play football and do something very artistic with football, but people want to win Champions League. They want to win the Premier League. So I think success for me is is being competitive and and you know, there's it's a proxy for you've done a great job, right? Mm-hmm. If you're doing it in a certain way, you should be able to win. So we think we're number one in our category now. We sold over two hundred million meals. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's successful. If we'd sold ten thousand meals. Maybe I can still argue with the category leader in that particular subcategory. So it's about um, sort of dominance in a way, right? Like category being the leader, it's not necessarily money in the bank or no. those kind of numbers. No. It's about influence and being... For me, money, I've obviously I've had enough money that I've got most things that I want. Um, I'm not rich, rich in terms of bank account, but I'm, um, I've, got, you know, I've got a car, I've got, I've got a car, nice car. What house. car do you drive? Got a, a, the electric Porsche. It's on lease. Is what it? I'm paid for. So yeah. Why would you buy it? You why know? would you buy a car these Mug, days? Yeah. Mugs game, man. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think it's. Um, I think if if you, you, know, you other people are telling you you're good at something, if if they're going to buy into it, so if you if you win at something, surely that's got to be the best place to so aim to be. Yeah, number one. Mm. Productivity can be challenging. We talked about it a bit today. Um, there's an expectation now of maximalism. Everyone has to have. Big businesses, multiple homes, be doing projects, have abs, be traveling, have interesting content. There's this kind of constant desire for more. With that in mind, if you had an extra hour in the day, what would you use it for? Well, like I said, I'm sure I've been putting some weight on recently. So I suppose for me at the moment, that probably would be my my go-to. I've got PT. Uh, I've got Chris, really good. He comes in here. We've got a gym, very good gym at Hule. And um, been doing that three days a week for the last couple of years. I put some weight on, probably put some extra fat on. To be fair, as well. no. <laughs> uh, but I, 
yeah, I think as you get older, you have to work harder mm-hmm. um, just to stay where you are. So I'm just trying to be. I feel I feel I'm definitely stronger than I've, I've ever been in my life. And uh, yeah, at the age of fifty, I still think if you keep trying, you can you can um, hold back. Do you uh, ever just challenge some of the twenty five year olds to an arm wrestle just to just no, to no, let no. them know who's got prob- arm wrestles? Probably not. But no, I, I think I can hold my own with some of the youngsters here. There's definitely some that are stronger than me, for example, but. Think that if you just you have to yeah you have to keep going, you have to keep trying. So I probably would do that bit more gym. I've read in the press, and I don't believe everything I read in the press, mainly because I put a lot of stuff in there. So yeah. I'm aware of the, the validity of it. I've read about a potential IPO. Yeah. Um. More recently, there's been some media coverage around that, citing a, a or, or or hoping for a billion dollar valuation. Yeah. Is that happening is that something that you are doing well you know the answer i can never tell you can i, I can't tell you that sort of stuff when when should we expect uh you know <laughs> all i can tell let me tell you something because that hasn't say. always been in the plan from the beginning you I didn't don't. say no. i want an ipo i want to be public i want no. a billion dollar company that's obviously evolved I, yeah i'll tell you why because nearly every t- everybody tells you don't do it that's why right they all say don't do it it's scary you're going to be on the market at the mercy of the market. They're very unforgiving. If you get anything wrong, you're going to get you're going to get slaughtered. Da 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 da. Right. Well, we've seen with Adam Newman, with Deliveroo, with these, even with Peloton, these yeah. businesses, yeah. and You've got the impact of getting it wrong is yeah. quite significant. So, but what's the alternative, right? What is the alternative? The alternative, you get you 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 keep going. Mm. So, I think Dyson's still a private company. There's very yeah. few that I can name. Dyson. I think Mars is a private company. There's very few that stay private. Right. So you can do that. That is an option. That is one option. You can sell. You can sell. Privately. So there seems to be three options. You either stay private, you sell. So private is, yeah, that's possible. That's what we're, we're at at the moment. We stay private. Yeah. Fine. That's where we currently are. Um, we could uh, sell, which is probably currently my least favourite. Uh, the reason I say that is that... It's there is ways to do it really good. There are examples. I don't want to name any names, but there is mm. ways to do it. I think traditionally the problems with being selling is that sometimes they take you over. They think they know best and change everything about your culture and change everything about mm. your product. And before you know, you're not left anymore. Mm. Or they get bored with you. You're a tiny percentage of their business, and they just sell you on or do something with you, and you just you don't get the truth. I, I'm slightly burnt from this because my first business got sold to an American company who didn't, in my eyes, give it um, full. Care and attention, mm. they could have given it more, and therefore it just died. So, I would it's hate not the legacy that you want, no, I mean, absolutely. I, I'd hate that. I mean, I've put all um, put so much effort into heal blood, sweat, tears that if somebody let it die, I'd be, I'd be a tad upset. Mm. So, so it feels like being on you know, if you IPO, if you think of all the great companies you can name in the world, you know, apart from Dyson and Mars, you name nearly every other company you can name, they would have, they would be on the stock market. Mm. So, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's got its, uh, its own uh, problems, but it feels like, but it's worked for a lot of other people, you name them, um, you know, the brands you look up to, your Googles, your Facebooks, your Apples, Nike, mm. they're all on the stock market. So yeah. it feels like it has to be the one, you know, at the moment, you say she was a, a toddler, to become a full mature business, yeah. you have to do that. Well, I have to. But it feels like that is the way to go. So it feels like it's my preference. Yeah. Um, uh, it's complicated. So it's quite hard to do. You're market dependent, time independent. So it's not an easy thing to get done. Um, but I feel that 
it's probably the best option. Right. But you want to keep your options open. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's an extraordinary achievement. I think there's, uh, you know, nine out of 10 businesses fail. Most of them fail in years two to three. And what you've achieved in seven years is extraordinary. It's such a popular brand. People are fanatical about it. It's a fantastic product. You've managed to remain uh, normal and kind and uh, positive. And I'm very grateful for your time today. I know it's um, precious and I know that you've given up, you know, probably now more than you would have hoped to. Um, But thank you for sharing all of that with me. I'm sure everyone listening will take so much from your journey and what you shared so thank you thank you very much